morning, everybody. That was much better than the first service crowd. You guys are awake. Uh, you had a chance to catch up on your sleep, right? Hey, would you just uh, join me and just let's give a little love to the band for leading us today. It was great, great worship time. Thank you, guys. It was awesome. All right, so in our current uh, series called Soul Cravings, we've been talking about these uh, different internal cravings that all of us have, and these are cravings that go to our very core. Um, they're a little more significant than just jonesing for a little Goodberry's frozen you know, custard or some Zaxby's chicken nuggets. These are cravings that are in us, and they, and they drive us, and they are put in us to lead us actually back to God. Um, let me ask the ushers if you would go ahead and... Uh, Bring Bibles down now. If, we're going to look at a couple of passages today that I think you'll find interesting. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'd love to give you one as our gift. Just sort of do this, and the usher will pass one to you. And we'll read those together here in just a little bit. Inside us, in addition to all these other cravings that we have that Donnie's already referred to uh, the last couple of weeks, we have this craving for significance. See, we need to know that we matter. We want reassurance that our life and our efforts have purpose, that they count for something. Uh, sometimes we go to extreme measures to feel significant. You know, we do some crazy things. Sometimes we act just a little weird. Um, I grew up in a very small town in Kansas named Wellington, about 30 miles south of Wichita, a little farm town. If, if you've ever seen an episode of Green Acres, that was close to how I grew up. But uh, I discovered something about a small town. It seems that uh, the social pecking order is established in preschool. So if you're not cool in preschool... Yeah, you never get reevaluated. You're just sort of, that's your lot for life. And that was me, uncool, all right? Um, it made it even worse in my search for significance. It, from kindergarten to third grade, I, they discovered about midway through kindergarten that I had this uh, bone thing called leg perthes. And, and that, what that meant was the ball joint in my right hip was getting mushy and deteriorating. And the normal procedure would be to do a hip replacement, but I was only six, and so they tried something different. They encased my right leg in this big metal brace and suspended my right leg about two inches off the ground and hoping that it would heal itself. And then to keep me from leaning to starboard, you know, for the rest of my life, they put a Frankenstein shoe on my left foot to balance me out. So I was a sight. I looked weird. I felt weird. I couldn't run and play with the other kids. I just kind of had to kind of totter through, through life, you know. It was, it was not very cool. And the worst part about it was because you can't run off all that stuff you're eating as a kid, I started to kind of grow in size. Got a little pudgy during that time. Well, in third grade, I got, at the end of third grade, I got the brace off my leg and just in time for them to put braces on my teeth. I mean, these are the big silver kind, the big 10 grand with headgear, and I had dork written all over my face. And so I wore those things until seventh grade. Apparently, I looked like Bugs Bunny, and it required a little extra time. So I didn't have any much more luck finding significance in sports either. You know, I tried it all. I mean, I, I tried playing football, baseball, wrestling. And I discovered that I was missing one key ingredient for significance in sports. That key ingredient was athletic ability. None. I mean, I, had, I was strictly J, not only was I JV, I was JJV. I was at the end of the bench uh, for most of my sports career. So finally I decided, well, I'll just create my own click, you know, and see how that works. Okay, well, the truth is I didn't really create a click. I just discovered who all the other Star Trek geeks were in my middle school, and we kind of hung out together, you know, the original series. You know, may you live long and prosper. Okay, so um, the rest of the student population still ignored me. You know, even when I wore my Captain Kirk shirt to school, it still, you know, I had no significance. In high school, at the, at the end of middle school, we moved to the big city of Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
and I had a chance to start over and kind of create a whole new identity. And so I thought, well, this time, in searching for significance, I will become Mr. Cynic, you know, Mr. Cynical, the guy that has, you know, the quick-witted guy with all the sarcastic comebacks and jokes and insults. And I was going to be very guarded in relationships because I figured it's better for me to hurt you before you can hurt me. No one was allowed to get close. I was sort of like um, Chandler Bing and friends, you know, except without the good looks, the great hair, and the cool wardrobe. That, you know, but I was trying the whole cynic thing. That didn't work. None of that stuff really helped me achieve significance. How many of you all saw uh, that recent film, Martian Child? Have any of you seen that? If you haven't seen it, I recommend you give it a spin on, on your DVD player at home. It's out now. It's a great film. For those of you who haven't seen it, the premise of the film is there's a very successful science fiction writer loses his wife, she dies, and he's very lonely. And so he decides to adopt um, a child. And he adopts a very troubled little boy named Dennis. Dennis was abandoned by his parents when he was very young. And so that abandonment, you know, wounded him so deeply, he's so afraid to connect with people, to keep them at arm's length and to protect himself from his own feelings, he's convinced himself that he's from Mars. And that, you know, his adopted father... Um, is trying desperately to connect with him. They have this um, conversation that I'd like to listen, you to listen in on right here. I can see Mars. Get out where I can't see it. Oh, that's a good eye. What do you think of when you see Mars? That my mission is almost over. I'll be going back soon, and then everything will go back to normal. Dennis, can I just say one last thing about Mars, which may be strange coming from a science fiction writer, but right now, you and me here, put together entirely from Adam, sitting on this round rock with a core of liquid iron held down by this force that so troubles you called gravity, all the while spinning around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour and whizzing through the Milky Way at 600,000 miles an hour in a universe that very well may be chasing its own tail at the speed of light. And amidst all this frantic activity, fully cognizant of our own imminent demise, which is a very pretty way of saying, we all know we're going to die. We reach out to one another. Sometimes for the sake of vanity, sometimes for reasons you're not old enough to understand yet, but a lot of the time we just reach out and expect nothing in return. Isn't that strange? Isn't that weird? Isn't that weird enough? What the heck do you need to be from Mars for? Did you catch that? Let me let me re rewind that dialogue there for you. In the midst of all this frantic activity fully cognizant of our own imminent demise, we reach out to one another and expect nothing in return. Isn't that strange? Isn't that weird? Isn't that weird enough? What do you need to be from Mars for? Does that resonate with you? It does with me. I mean, when you think about it, really, why would anyone bother? I mean, we are so insignificant in the scheme of the universe that you think we'd sort of learn our place, right? We'd sort of fade into the woodwork in the background and not create too much trouble and not make a big fuss um, just kind of pipe down and be quiet. But there is something inside us that craves to know that we are more, that craves to know that we matter. 
that we want to be significant. That drives us. And it seems like as human beings, we're constantly wrestling with some of these internal questions. We, you know, we ask, man, is this it? Does my life count? Am I good enough? Do I matter to anyone? I mean, these are tough questions. These are those hard, soul-searching questions, the kind that keep you awake at night when you should be asleep, the kind that keep you lingering in front of the mirror, overanalyzing your looks, your career, uh, the conversation you had with someone the day before. You're overanalyzing in front of the mirror when you should be getting ready for school or for work. These are the questions that uh, make you second-guess yourself in the locker room or make you cower in the dressing room or procrastinate in the parking lot, even though you know you're already late for the sales presentation. These questions have been murmuring and rattling around in our subconsciousness for years, and we can't seem to shake them. Here's the deal. We aren't insignificant. We are significant. We've been chosen. I, I want to show you a very deceptively simple scripture, and I want you to keep in mind that there's more going on here than what you might immediately notice on our first run across it. So, um, let's read it, and then we'll back up and talk about it for just a moment. This is from Mark chapter 1, it's, uh, beginning in verse 16. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. And Jesus called out to them, Come follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. So they left their nets at once and followed him. Uh, a little further up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets. He called them at once. And they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in a boat with the hired men. So what's, you know, what's the big deal? A bunch of guys are standing around. Jesus says, hey, follow me. And so they go, okay, and follow him. Well, it, it, there is a lot going on here. Um, there's a great book, by the way. If you haven't read it yet, it's by a guy named Rob Bell. It's a book called Velvet Elvis. There's a chapter in this book called Dust. And, and Rob does a great job of giving some background um, into what was going on in the culture and the life of these people at this time that really kind of opened up the meaning to these verses for me. I'll share a little bit of that with you. It seems that in Jesus' day, education wasn't seen as a luxury or really even an option. Education was considered a matter of survival. See, the Torah was so central to Jewish life that if you lost it, they believed that you lost everything. Now, the Torah is, is comprised of the first five books that we know as the Old Testament in our, in our Bibles. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and the book of Deuteronomy. So from beginning at age 6 until around age 10, Jewish kids would go to school at the local synagogue, and they would receive their first level of education. And they would work from age 6 to age 10 at memorizing um, those first five books of our Bible. All right? Now, think about that for a minute. By age 10, they would know the whole thing by heart. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized. Okay, at age 10, I had trouble learning my multiplication tables, right? This is incredibly intimidating to think this, but, but they did. Many of them did. And as a matter of fact, some of these students were good enough that they moved on to the next level of education, and they kept studying the rest of Hebrew Scripture and committing it to memory and by heart. And by age 14, many of those students had the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures memorized. Okay, I chew on that one for a minute. Have you looked at that Bible? Okay, two-thirds of that book they had up here. 39 books, Genesis through Malachi, they had memorized. At age 14, I couldn't remember to make my bed or put the toilet seat down, okay? And these, these kids had that much information packed in their brains and in their hearts. The best of that group would then move on to the highest form of study. Uh, a really great student would apply to a well-known rabbi. He would come and ask and tell him, I want to be your disciple. So the rabbi would evaluate him and if he believed the student had the ability to do what he did and to learn what he learned and to know what he knew, 
he would say, follow me. At that point, the student would leave his home, his family, his friends, everything that was familiar to him, and devote his whole life to doing just what the rabbi did. He gave up his whole life to be just like his rabbi. Okay, now about those other students, the ones that struggled in school, didn't make the cut. Well, they, the system sent them on the learn-a-trade route. They went home to learn the family trade. Instead of Ivy League, they went Votech. Uh, they learned to pottery, they learned farming, they learned making shoes, and yes, they learned fishing. So let's cycle back to that scene we read earlier. Now imagine what life is like for Peter, Andrew, James, and John. See, every night, all through the night, from, from dusk until dawn, these guys threw these big heavy nets out into the water and then hauled them back in. Threw them back out, hauled them back in, hoping they were full of fish. Over the course of the night, the nets got waterlogged. They got heavier and heavier and heavier until by the time sun came up, they could barely pull them. And they did this six days a week. At dawn, they would gather and sort through all the fish. They'd send the, the best ones on to market, hoping to sell them. They'd take the inferior ones back home, hoping there was enough food to feed their families that day. Well, then, you know, at that point, they, you know, their backs are throbbing, their hands are raw and blistered, their eyes are burning from lack of sleep. They'd love to go to bed, but before they can do that, they've got to mend the nets, they've got to clean the boat, they've got to do something with all those fish guts that are around there, and they do that six days a week. Why are they fishermen? Well, because they're not disciples. They weren't good enough. And you can bet that each day at some point, one of those guys, uh, as they were up to their knees in fish guts, was asking, you know, is this it? (laughs) Am I more than this? And Jesus comes along out of the blue and says, yes, you are. Follow me. I think you're more. I see more in you than anyone else does. I see more in you than you see in yourself. And I choose you to be my disciple. Now, can you imagine what that must have felt to those guys? They had been waiting their whole life to hear someone say, you're significant. You're good enough. You matter. I want you. When Jesus said, follow me, it changed their present and it changed their future. As we kind of wind up this morning, I want to, leave you with a couple of thoughts about significance. The first one is this. Significance, apart from God, is insignificant. Okay? Let me say that again. Significance, apart from God, is insignificant. See, here's the thing. Companies go out of business. Um, You know, sports records get shattered. Popularity goes just as fast as it comes. Cool cars and, and, and fast boats, they all wear out. Clothes go out of style. There are people younger, more aggressive, more talented than you that are rising fast and are about to knock you off the corporate ladder. Some good news for you there. But you know that, don't you? See, investing all your time, your money, and your energy into things apart from God will not leave you with the feeling that you matter. They will not leave you with the feeling that you are important. Most of the time, those things leave you feeling worse. See, God gives me and you significance. When I find my internal significance in God, then my external circumstances don't really matter. It doesn't matter what my career is. It doesn't matter what style of clothes I have. It doesn't matter how tall or how short I am, if I'm skinny, if I'm fat. It doesn't matter if I have any athletic ability at all, you know, because those are external things. So if my internal significance is found in God, then it doesn't matter what life throws at me. I know that I matter to someone, and it's okay. The second thing is, I am significant to God. Please hear me. You are significant to God. 
Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. He says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Think about that. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. The good news is that you and I can come to God as is. We don't have to have it all together before we invite God into our life. I don't have to hide who I am, where I've been, what I've done. I don't have to hide that from God. He knows. He's seen behind our last mask. All that stuff we were hoping that nobody saw, he saw it. All that stuff that we were ashamed of because we didn't quite measure up and, and, and everyone's told us that we weren't good enough and we tried to live our whole lives, you know, putting that back behind us and not letting anyone know. God's seen all that. He knows that. He knows what you're not capable of and what you are capable of. He knows all the things that you're ashamed of, the things that, that you wish that you could go back and undo, but you haven't. He's very well aware of the poor decisions that you made last night. He knows that. You're not fooling him. And he loves you anyway. The bottom line is, I matter to God, and that's all that matters. You matter to God, and that's all that matters. God chose the not good enoughs, the ones everyone else passed over, to change the world. You and I, we're very valuable to God. We're so valuable, we were worth the blood of his son. And he invited you and I to follow him and to learn from him and to participate in his mission to save the world. It's an, an invitation that he's given us. Jesus had this to say in John chapter 15, verse 6. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. God comes looking for me and for you. We don't have to hound him. We don't have to go through these layers of bureaucracy to, to try to make an appointment, to get on his schedule. We don't have to buy anything. We don't have to schmooze him. We don't have to impress him or bluff our way in to see him. He chose us. Knowing what he knows, knowing that we're messed up and broken and beaten down and discouraged by life, God still sees each and every one of us as worth his time. Isn't that strange? Isn't that weird? Isn't that weird enough? Why do we need to look for significance anywhere else? Maybe today is the day that you quit running from him and you just make a move toward him and you allow him to embrace you and have a relationship with you, something he's been wanting to do for a long time. It's never too late. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just want to pause for a moment and to tell you this, this deal seems almost too good to be true. All of our other experiences in life, all the other people in our life have told us for a long time in some way that we don't measure up, that we're not worth it, that we're too far gone, that we've messed up one too many times, that this is something that can't be forgiven, and yet you say 
I choose you. Follow me. You are significant to me. Father, we help us to just take a step of faith and, and to grab on to, and to the hope that this is all true and to allow you to have a relationship with us, to forgive us, to make us whole again. Thank you so much for loving us enough that you'd send your son. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.